Tonight, open your Bibles, please, to Leviticus chapter 6. Leviticus chapter 6, we're going to continue our study of this amazing book. And uh, Lord willing, I'll be able to keep up the pace of a, a chapter a night and uh, kind of get a better contextual flow uh, through the particular book. Uh, this first section is dealing with the offerings and what they entail, what they're about, what they represent. And uh, we're going to continue that on here in 6.1. It's kind of interesting. You'll see a little note there. That's Leviticus 5.20 in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, they broke up the paragraph divisions and chapter divisions differently in uh, uh, the book of Leviticus for some reason known only to those people that do such things. But this is actually 5.20 in the Hebrew Bible. So uh, these first seven verses go with chapter 5 in the Hebrew Bible. And then it, it uh, uh, actually what we have is 6.8 is actually 6.1 in the Hebrew Bible. So, And I think they level out again at the end of 7. <laughs> but I'm not going to swear to that right now. But anyway, let's just take a moment for prayer to get ourselves ready to study the Word of God. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, again, we thank you for your blessings, for your tests, for your opportunities. We thank you for your amazing word. We thank you for its precision. We thank you that it is trustworthy. We thank you we can thank you that we can open it up today, and it's just as relevant today as the day in which it was written. Father, we give you the praise for all that. I pray that the Holy Spirit will grant us insight and understanding as we move through this uh, amazing book. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Leviticus chapter 6, we're going to see this phrase, and the Lord spoke to, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, uh, I put a little note at the end of this uh, chapter, but I'll go ahead and talk about it now. The word speak there is a PL perfect of davar, which is a word that's a Hebrew word similar to logos in the Greek that emphasizes the definition and meaning of the word. And then the word saying is amar. It's akin to the word rhema in the Greek, which emphasizes the utterance of the word, the spoken word itself. And so it's kind of redundant. It's a, what they call a Hebraism. And you'll see it carried over that way into the New Testament, even when they're writing in Greek. You'll say, and, and the, the, the Lord answered and said. You'll, what? In, in answering and saying the same thing? Actually, it's not. And it's a Hebrewism that basically says he thought about it first and then he spoke. He answered up here and then he spoke out here. And that's the, the Hebrewism that comes out of, out of the Old Testament here. <clears throat> In verse 2, um, this speaks about financial harm to others. This is going to be um, uh, the trespass offering, but it's also going to deal with some specifics. And it says, when a person, again, this is nephish, when a soul sins, and this is our word kata, which is the normal word for sin that we find, and acts unfaithfully. <clears throat> now, this is the, the word ma'al, M-A-A-L. And ma'al, the word's actually doubled here. It's kind of like the... The dying you shall die, we see in Genesis chapter 2. This is a word we saw last week, and it basically looked acts unfaithfully as not just acts unfaithfully, but covered it up. Okay, It's something that they did, they know they did. These are clearly in this chapter dealing with sins of conscious sins, that they know what they're doing, it's not a mistake, and it's, it'll, it clearly comes out here. And it basically says acts unfaithfully or covers a cover-up is literally what it says. Against the Lord. Now, it's futile to try and hide anything from the Lord. But sometimes the sin nature takes hold of th people and things and they think, yeah, he won't notice. Well, <laughs> we just read in Second Peter 3, there's nothing that escapes his notice. And his judgment is not even nodding off is what, what the word said. Now, <clears throat> he says against the Lord. So the first thing here is a action against the Lord. And then it's how it's manifested. See, it says, and deceives. This is the word kakash, 
K-A-C-H-A-S-H. K-A-C-H-A-S-H. Now, kakash is a word used 22 times, and it means to be untrue, to lie, or to deceive. It's interesting, the first usage of this word popped up in Genesis 18:15, And this is when Sarah laughed, and the Lord called her on the carpet, and she says, but I did not laugh. Says she denied it and said she was <laughs> covering it up. I mean, here's a good picture of the way the words are used and all that. And uh, she, when she was confronted with it, she, uh, <clears throat> when she was confronted with it, then she just said, "No, I didn't do that." And the Lord said, "Oh, yes, you did. <laughs> I know you did. You're not getting away with it. I'll be back this time next year." An interesting thing is, I'm sure Abraham laughed too, but Abraham laughed with God and Sarah laughed at God. <laughs> There was a distinct difference in that. And it says, And deceives his companion, his companion, his friend, his neighbor, in regard to a deposit. Now, a deposit is picadon. The word's only used four times. Uh, it's used twice in verse 4 of this chapter, in Genesis 6, 4. And the other usage is Genesis 41, 36. And there it is used to describe the storehouses for the grain that Joseph put the grain in during the seven years of plenty while they were storing up for the seven years of famine. So it's a, it's a thing that says uh, in regard to a deposit, in regard to a storehouse. We'll kind of explore this in just a second as to what it's actually saying. But it's basically saying you, you're lying about your inventory. Okay, that's a simple way to bring it into the English. And he says, or a security entrusted to him. Now, this is the word tesumeth, T-E-S-U-S-U-M-E-T-H. Tesumeth, this word's not used very often uh, either. It's only used once, in fact. So, it's couple with the word hand. Yod is the word for hand. So it says basically to sumeth is a pledge. So it says a pledging of the hand and this is where we got handshake from. It's a handshake deal. Okay, you made an agreement. You made it on a handshake. It's not written down anywhere, but you made it on a, on a handshake. And thus it became a contract. So like Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no and any, else, any other stuff's evil. So when we give our word, that's what it's supposed to be and that's part of what this is talking about here. You've given your word about something and then you decide not to do it. Or through robbery, robbery is a gazelle, G-A-Z-E-L, used four times. And this is, means anything taken away by violence. Uh, armed robbery would uh, describe it it wouldn't, you wouldn't have to be armed. You could just threaten somebody or whatever, but you took something by violence. He says, or if he has extorted, and that is the word ashak, A-S-H-A-Q. Let's see if I can get this right. Ashak. <clears throat> and ashak, word used 35 times, it's used... Uh, in Leviticus 19.13 about not defrauding a neighbor and it's used in Deuteronomy 24.14 don't defraud somebody working for you okay so that it's, it's pretty 35 usages of it and it gives us a pretty good extent of what it's talking about there so and there's some serious warnings about this you don't defraud or extort your neighbor. You don't defraud or extort a worker, somebody that you've hired to work for you. He says, <clears throat> uh, through or ex if he is extorted or defrauded from his companion. In verse three, or is found what was lost and lied about it. Okay, you got a what? You found a handbag, and you find the identification, and you know who it is, and then you just keep it. <laughs> <laughs> if you find it, you're supposed to return it under the laws of, of Israel. I know this is all laws of Israel, but we're looking at some stuff that he's telling us 
is just kind of the doctrine of the blatantly obvious. These are sins. And they're conscious sins. And people that don't, don't do these things by accident. They do these things by conscious decision. And he says, Er has found what was lost and lied about it <clears throat> and sworn falsely. Um, literally in the Hebrew it says, sworn into a sham. Interesting phrase. You have uh, basically, <laughs> did you find it? No. He lied about it. And he says, kind of like uh, Peter, I swear it wasn't me that was with the Galilean. You know, it was just kind of the same type of thing. Peter violated so many laws under the Mosaic Law that night before the cross. It was just, it's hard or hard to count. And he says, so that he sends, kata, once again, in regard to any one of the things a man may do. So this is not an exhaustive list. Okay? He's saying there is sin involved and there are other things that are clear issues of ethics, uh, morality. There are things like that that a person should know uh, are, are no good. <clears throat> now, these are sins of various kinds of deception. That's what it's when a person sins against the Lord, he acts unfaithfully, tries to cover it up against the Lord, and he's found out about, about it. They're a conscious deception. Thus they are known sins. These are things you can't do just by accident. I mean, armed robbery is not an accident. It has nothing to do with your environment. It has nothing to do with anything else. It's something that you decided to do. <clears throat> they, the sins mentioned include <clears throat> lying about your inventories. That's that storehouse word that is used there. Basically, why would you lie about your inventory? Companies do it all the time. They can drive up the prices while supply and demand. Say we don't have much oil. They did that back in the 70s. I was in Houston at the time back in the 70s. And they they said, well, we're just a shortage of oil. And then Marvin Zindler with Eyewitness News came on. He's the one that uncovered the uh, best little whorehouse in Texas. They made a movie about it. But Marvin Zindler is the one that found it, and he found that they, all of the oil tanks in Houston were full, and there were five tankers waiting offshore to unload their stuff. So it was a fabrication. There was not a shortage, but they used it to drive up uh, the prices. <coughs> or... Why, else, why would you want to inflate your inventory? Because you want security for a loan. Okay, like, what is your net worth? When you go and apply for a loan, they did the same thing with the Jews. They weren't supposed to charge excession, exceptional or excessive interest, but they had to, if they put up a surety for it or their, their chariot or whatever they had back then, they put that up. And if they said, well, I've got ten chariots, I, wanna, I want to bar make a loan on them, they only had five. That's what these kind of laws are against. It's also <clears throat> a sin that any handshake agreement has been made. And that's the way we used to do business. It's really uh, discouraging that it's not done that way now. And uh, people end up turning, turning things over to attorneys. Instead of being able to work it out, Jesus said, "If you got something against your brother, go and fix it before you go to court. You know, fix it, get make amends, and that all comes right out of the law. That principle comes right out of what we're looking at right here. If you take something from somebody, restore it. Okay, and if you try to hide that you took it from them, you not only restore it, but you add 20% to it, and then you offer up a sacrifice. <laughs> I mean, so it's not not over. It was." It was expensive to cheat under the Mosaic Law. But now it seems to get rewarded in so many circles. <clears throat> Taking from another, you shall not steal. Eighth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 15. So to rob somebody is taking from somebody what is not yours. Fraud, including extortion uh, toward anyone. Extortion is just a th threat, some type of threat in order to extract money or whatever. Uh, and it, there, it's all fraud, but that would include extortion, 
which usually involves uh, threats of some kind. But not seeking to return an item to its rightful owner. You know, you, you occasionally hear about it on the news. And <clears throat> somebody finds a wallet with $10,000 in it and wants to track down the right. <laughs> occasionally it happens. How somebody could lose a wallet with that much money in it, I don't know. But uh, if you find something like that, the test is find out who owns it if you can and return it to them. Don't hide it up. Don't put it in your pocket. Don't take it somewhere else. Try to get it back to the person that it rightfully belongs to. <clears throat> and then it closes it out with, what was this phrase? Any of the things that a man might do? Any other conscious sin? If you do something you know is wrong, don't do it. Okay? So <clears throat> that's what he's talking about. Verse 4 then it shall be when he sins, kata once again, and becomes guilty, asham. Now this is the word that means it has gone beyond an accusation to the facts being presented uh, like to the priest and a declaration made. Yeah, you're guilty of this. Okay, that's what he says and becomes guilty. It's the verdict has been rendered, in other words. <clears throat> that he shall restore. It's interesting, we find in other parts of the law, if you accuse somebody of stealing something and they didn't steal it, then you get to pay them what they what you accuse them of stealing. Well, pretty good. It's a real common sense, practical system. To me, it's just the way it ought to be done. <clears throat> that he should, um, if he becomes guilty, he should restore. <clears throat> Excuse me, this is the word shuv. S-H-U-B-H, this is a Hebrew 101 word. It's used 1,057 times in the Old Testament. And it basically means return. Its very first use was Genesis 3.19 and the curse on Adam that says, you're going to return to the ground that I made you from. Okay, you're going to go, go back. So when it says return it, you steal a guy's ox, for example, you better return the same ox. Okay. You get declared guilty that that was his ox and not your ox and it was in your possession and you were trying to hide it, then you're supposed to return the same ox, not another one, the same one, and then you're going to add 20% to it. Plus you're going to offer a sin offering as a sacrifice. <clears throat> add to it one-fifth more. He shall give it to the one to whom it belongs on the day he presents his guilt offering. So this guy's been found guilty. Okay, He's been charged. He's been found guilty. And it says you're going to give the guy back what you took from him plus 20% and you're going to do it in front of the priest so the priest can witness that restitution has been made. Okay, Not, not left a chance here. Again, it's very practical. Priest oftentimes became... Until the period of the judges themselves, the priest under the wilderness wanderings, the Mosaic Law in the early part of the, uh, after the conquest, they were the ones that made the judicial decisions. So, um, on the day presents his guilt offerings, which is a ashamah, so the word, it's an interesting word. Asham is a word we just saw, which is a word declared guilty up there. It just took that word, turned it into a feminine noun, and it basically is used to describe the, the guilt or the trespass um, offering itself for being found guilty. So when you're found guilty, you restore, you add 20%, and you offer up an offering. Now, to me, that's so practical because that's going to hurt. You know, that's going to hurt people. If they end up paying out more than they stood to gain or that they gained by fraud. It's, it's not a profitable venture. Crime didn't pay under the Mosaic Law. <clears throat> it did later because nobody enforced it. Kind of like something we've got going on right now in our country. You know, crime does pay. If you take less than $1,000 in a lot of places, nobody cares. That's hard to even grasp. I mean, gosh, they 
get you when I was a kid for taking a baseball card. I didn't take one. I found one laying on the floor one time. And, and so I picked it up and put it in my pocket. And the little lady cashier asked me, what are you going to do with that baseball card you put in your pocket? <laughs> I said, well, it was just laying there loose. I didn't take it out. Anyway, I got caught. And um, we had a come to Jesus meeting. And I learned from that mistake that I should not have, have made. It wasn't even a good baseball card just laying there. <laughs> if it had been Mickey Mantle, we'd have had an argument <laughs> over it. it. says, Then he shall bring to the priest his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defects. See, this is not the two turtle doves thing, is it? Now here's the prescribed offering. A ram without defect from the flock according to your valuation for a gift offering. Your valuation, he's talking to Moses. And he's talking about the valuation that Moses sets on the shekel at that point in time. And so Moses had the authority to do that. It would later be the uh, high priest. They'd had another system to uh, establish that. But th this, is, this is according to your, he's still talking to Moses. Now verse 7, And the priest shall make atonement for him, this defrauding sinner, before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any one of the things which he may have done to incur guilt. So he's saying it can it can all be restored. Okay, and how do you go about doing that? Now, the point is that sin is costly, so not just restoration is required, but 20% penalty for it. The repayment is to be witnessed by the priest as the guilty party brings a ram as an offering. The ram is an additional penalty. So for somebody to do this, it's going to cost his family. Not just him, it's going to cost his family. Conscious sins are in a sense worse, but they're all sins. And they all require payment. Because the sin offering we saw in chapter 5 is all about uh, unknown sins. Things you didn't realize you were doing. But they still brought some pretty serious penalties. Which is, the, the point is find out what's sin and what's not <laughs> so you're not constantly caught in one of these uh, unknown sins uh, uh, situations principle restoration for the purpose of peace is important okay because it establishes peace again with the with the criminal <laughs> and with the victim it establishes peace again with the nation they have been forgiven, taken away, not an issue anymore because they have been paid. So sin requires a payment. Now, they couldn't take care of their eternal problems, but this is how they took care of their uh, social problems that they faced in the nation. Now, <clears throat> we start here in verse 8. This is actually 6-1 in the Hebrew Bible. Those other verses go on through and finish out chapter 5, but... Uh, I, I tried not to confuse the matter, but it's all confusing because I was, I punched into my computer program, Leviticus 6.1, and it took me to 5.20. And I keep going, what? Had to look at it two or three times. Still wasn't awake yet this morning when I was doing that. And I looked at it two or three times and I went, oh, I see. <laughs> the, uh, by the way, the paragraphs in the Hebrew and Greek were not inspired. Okay. He, the paragraphs weren't added until A.D. But you say, wouldn't that be hard to read? Uh, a Hebrew text You see, we, we break all the words up. We break them up neatly. Okay. We're going to Oops, no space. All right, that's all one word. That's how it was written, right to left. It, ran, it goes till it runs out of the, the page, goes back, starts again. Kind of like eating corn on the cob. Okay? <clears throat> And it runs from, from right to left. Greek did the same thing. They didn't have spaces because they didn't have a whole lot of paper. 
They don't have paper like we have. They couldn't process it like we do. And they couldn't make photocopies like we can. So they put this all together. But if you're a Jew and this is the way you're taught it, this is no problem to you at all. Just look at that without any spaces and read it very clearly. Because you go, Bereshit, in a beginning, Bara, he created Elohim. Elohim, he created, because the verb comes in front of the noun in there. And there's a series of long vowels, and there are also series of final, what they call a final letter. Um, uh, M looks like this if it's in the middle of the word. It looks like this if it's on the end of the word. The S in the Greek is the same way. So, and the TZ in the Hebrew looks like this in the middle of the word, looks like that on the end of the word. So there were there are different ways they knew where the word stopped and started. They knew where they began. And it is no problem if you're taught that way to begin with. You don't need the spaces. Well, they finally, whenever they got a little more paper, they decided they're going to put some uh, verse numbers in it. God didn't say, all right, write Deuteronomy 6.4, Moses. <laughs> you know, he, and he just said, write this down. So that's what Moses wrote. And then they came in and added verse numbers so we could find things easier, added the addresses and all that. And they broke the paragraphs into the way that they were understood by the uh, transmitters of the text, the copyists of the text. These people were very familiar with the text. They understood where every letter was supposed to fit, how it was supposed to be in there. And so they're able to, to read and get a, a break point in the thought. So they broke it into paragraphs. And that's, that's how it happened later. So now we get, when we get a, a Hebrew text, it's all broken into paragraphs, and we got little numbers for, for the verse numbers and all those other things. And but it, you know, the people that received all this, that's what it looked like, you know. And they just go, oh, in the beginning, God created the heavens. It's no big deal to them. That's just the way they, they did it. Now, <clears throat> so this is six one. Now that was that little side note lesson that we have. 6.8 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying... We're going to see that multiple times in this chapter. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying... And I actually like the way the Hebrews broke it apart better than the Masoretes broke it apart in the 800s A.D. Because this first seven verses went with the last chapter better than it goes with this chapter. That... It is what it is, and I don't want to go redoing all of the paragraphs in the Bible. So, in verse 9, he says, command. This is the PL imperative of Zawah. This is one of those cool words. T-Z-A-W-A-H. Zawah is uh, used 494 times. First use is in Genesis 2.16. And he said to Moses, command. And it says, and the Lord commanded the man to not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. Okay? So we got a real clear picture of what this word means. When you put an M on the front of it, you get mitzvah. And that is the word that is translated um, as uh, justice. Or judge. So, zawah is a word that means to command. Mitzvah is a result of a command, i.e., a commandment. That's how we how we see it. Torah is a word for law. Mitzvah is the word for commandment. So, <clears throat> command Aaron and his sons. Okay. So, notice this chain of chain of authority being clearly established. Moses, I'm telling you this. Your job is tell Aaron and his son. I want you to instruct them all at the same time. Saying, this is the Torah, this is the law for the burnt offering, the Olah. The burnt offering itself shall remain on the hearth, on the altar, all night until the morning. 
So when you bring a burnt offering, you keep it burning. And the fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. Now, <clears throat> interesting thing, and what they burn up is the fat. You know what fat does when it hits flame? It flames. It just fans the flame, so to speak. That's part of why don't eat any of the fat. And the priest is to put on his linen robe. This is the word bod, B-A-D-H, used 23 times. Uh, they were told to make these linen garments, fine linen, cotton garments, uh, in Exodus 28:42, And he says he shall put on undergarments next to his flesh. And he shall take up the ashes to which the fire reduces the burnt offering on the altar and place them besides the, beside the altar. Now, <clears throat> God is so practical here because the bronze altar was set on a mound. There's the mound. There's the bronze altar. <clears throat> and I'm a terrible artist. I'll put labels on it if you need. But here is the the bronze altar. But what happens when a priest goes up to the altar, to the people standing on the ground? He flashes them. <laughs> Looks like a pride parade. Okay? So he's he's going up there and he's got to bend over <laughs> to get the ashes out of the altar. And then he puts them back on the ground here before he takes them out of the camp. And he's going to get dirty because this altar is not like our little outdoor cookers. This is a big, th- big altar, and it's going to have a lot of ashes in it after the after the bull is burned up and the rams and the day's offerings are all burned up. And so he says, he shall take off his garments and put on other garments, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. <clears throat> why would you go back? Why would you do that? The Lord basically told the priest, don't expose yourself. Okay? It is very poor uh, decorum <laughs> to expose yourself in places that doesn't need to be exposed. Okay? And so <clears throat> he shall take it off and take him outside to a clean place, and the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. Now that's quite a task, isn't it? You've got to get the ashes out of the altar and keep the fire burning. <laughs> you think they saved this for the lowest ranking priest <laughs> for the, for their new for their new uh, uh, probies, if you will? <laughs> and they said, "Okay, your turn. <laughs> you get to go up and do this." You can probably see why they wanted a lot of them too. And so he um, uh, he says, "It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning." He shall lay out the burnt offering on it and offer up and smoke the fat portions of the peace offerings on it. Fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It's not to go out. See how many times he says that going through there? Don't let the fire go out. Now atonement for sins is needed all the time till the issue is settled. Why do they not want this thing to go out? It, it, atonement is a covering, right? What happens when you have a pile of, of stuff out there and you got it covered up with a tarp? Okay, you don't want it exposed anymore, so you leave the covering on it, and that's what this fire and the burnt offering and that picture is is a picture of propitiation and also a picture of atonement. So he's saying you got to keep these things covered, okay, until they're totally totally paid for. The priest is to be sure he's completely covered when going up to the altar so as not to expose any private parts. It is untoward, it is improper, uh, etc. This, this is not a pride parade, that's what he's saying. Being soiled from taking up the ashes, the priest is to change clothes and take the ashes outside the camp to cleanse the outside. What's the interesting thing about ashes? They're sterile. Why was Job sitting in the ash pile? Okay? Why did they they cover themselves with ashes from time to time to sterilize is what what they did. And so 
taking him outside the camp. What is happening? It, it's, a, it's a very beautiful, subtle picture of evangelism. This is a burnt offering, and you're taking the ashes of this burnt offering that is a picture of propitiation, reconciliation, redemption. It's a picture of all that, and you're taking these ashes out here and saying, you want to cleanse yourself outside the camp? It's just a small picture, subtle picture of evangelism. The important thing here is that the burnt offerings to be kept burning at all times. He said it over and over again. It's just a covering until Messiah comes and offers the one sacrifice for sin for all time. Then you don't need to do any of this anymore. Now, <clears throat> the law of the gift offerings is in verse 14 in our English Bible, verse 7 in the Hebrew Bible. And it says, now this is the law of the grain offering. We've been through this before. If you have a King James, it says the meat offering. Uh, it is a menka Offering, and this is a word that means a gift. Uh, it has to do with the perfect gift that came down from above, the bread that came down from above. This should have been especially meaningful to the Jews when they gathered the manna every morning because manna comes from the same group of words that we get, minka. And so it's a word that means clearly means gift. And it is the, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. That's what Jesus said. So it's a picture of the Messiah. He says... Now this is the law of the gift offering. The sons of Aaron shall present it before the Lord in front of the altar. And one of them shall lift up from it a handful of the fine flour of the gift offering with its oil and all the incense that's on the grain offering. And he shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, a soothing aroma as its memorial offering to the Lord. Soothing aroma, when you see that, it's a picture of propitiation. To offer up a soothing aroma to the Lord. And what is left of it, Aaron and his sons are to eat. Huh. They get to eat a little bit. It shall be eaten as unleavened cakes in a holy place. Holy place is a place that is set apart for them to be able to consume it. They are to eat it in the court of the tent of meeting. So we remember when you come in through the, the main entryway, you're confronted with the bronze altar. And behind that is the bronze laver and then the tabernacle itself, the tent itself that's behind that. And there's a, supposed to be a designated place that the priests are supposed to eat this. That's what he's saying. But it's supposed to be in the court, not in the tent of the meeting. And it's not supposed to have any leaven. Boy, we wouldn't expect any leaven, would we? It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their share from my offerings. <laughs> you see, the priests need to remember the offerings are not to them. <laughs> the offerings are to the Lord, and they get to share in the offerings that come to the Lord. In my offerings, by fire, it is most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the sons of Aaron may eat it. It's a permanent ordinance throughout your generations. From the offerings by fire to the Lord, whoever touches them shall become consecrated. Declared holy. What? <laughs> okay. The gift offerings are to be shared by the priest as their sustenance. The women would be permitted to partake of the other provisions from the offer, from the offerings. Because see, the, they too, the women, would be able to eat from the manna like the priest. They would have other offerings that they would do, but the Lord said, this one is for the male priest only. And it was a picture of the fact that priests have always had a special place in the plan of God. Back then, only the tribe of Levi were, were priests. Now we're all priests. So we all, as the church, have a special place in the, in the plan of God. So that had to be a picture of the fact that the priesthood was special. And women weren't to be priests under the Mosaic, under the Mosaic law. Since this was a daily occurrence, it portrayed phase two sanctification. Ah, whoever touches them shall become consecrated. It's something they did over and over and over. And that's like... 
we as Christians were sanctified the moment of salvation, were set apart, given righteousness, declared holy, but then be ye holy as I am holy. That's written to believers in First Peter, which is a quote from the Old Testament. That means it's a process. There's an experiential process of becoming holy. So we are to learn to walk this straight and narrow. I got in a conversation with somebody um, today. I don't think it was at lunch. And I haven't slept since then, so I'm not quite sure. Um, the word righteous, Greek is dikaios, means straight. That's its very root, basic meaning. We have been imputed with the straightness of God. So, is <laughs> should Christians be straight or gay? <laughs> Answer that. I mean, okay. The chaos means straight. And where are we in? The middle of a crooked and perverted generation. <laughs> and yet, to be holy means that we're walking a straight path with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That means we are trying to live the righteousness that was given to us at the moment of salvation. Without that, it's impossible. With that, it is possible. But it is a very, very clearly a process. Because that means we're going to learn what is pleasing in the eyes of the Lord and we're going to try to make it our life. To be occupied with Christ, that's what that's all being about. To be occupied with Christ is walk that straight, narrow line just like he did. Uh, to be a witness uh, for him. Now, <clears throat> uh, phase two, sanctification. And a question, were the priests hoping that people would sin so they could eat? <laughs> I suspect at different times in the life of Israel... Yes, they were. <laughs> I saw you. I saw they false accusations. No telling what could be brought against people when people get a little bit of power and no character. We we still see it today. Now, verse 19 to 23 is an offering for the anointing of the priest. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "These are obviously different increments that He's giving to him. It, it appears different times." Probably not very far apart, but he said the Lord spoke to Moses. So he's he's telling us, in fact, I'm going to look up, if I remember it, uh, how many times it says the Lord spoke to Moses in the Mosaic Law. Because every time he did, it was something, he's getting ready to unveil a law. He says, this is the offering, this is the korban, which Aaron and his sons are to present to the Lord on the day when he... He makes it a singular, not they being all the priests. But Aaron is to be anointed, first of all, as the high priest. And there's a separate set. We went through it in Exodus. There's a separate set of instructions to put the high priest in place, uh, especially with the first time. There's also special ordination instructions for the normal Levitical priest. But it says uh, when he, singular here... uh, Pronouns are important, especially if you're studying language. When he is anointed, the tenth of an ephah. Now, if you got any ephah measures in your pantry in there, it's good to know that a tenth of an ephah is also known as an omer. The omer measures in there. An omer is about seven and a half pints. Now, we could figure that one out. <laughs> okay. What is it? Two pints to the court? Is what it is? Two pints to the quart, so it's almost a gallon. Okay, now we got something we could live with here. Um, a fine flour as a regular minka gift offering. Half of it in the morning, half of it in the evening. Okay, so what did they have? They have a morning to evening job. So that's what they're supposed to consecrate. And it shall be prepared with oil on a griddle. When it is well stirred, you shall bring it. Haven't run into well stirred before. I don't know if it's a shaken, not stirred type of martini or what it is, but it says, 
Mix it all up real good with oil in it. You shall present the grain offering in baked pieces as a soothing aroma to the Lord. And the anointed priest who will be in this, his place among his sons shall offer it. By a permanent ordinance it shall be entirely offered up in smoke uh, to the Lord. So every gift offering of the priest shall be burned entirely and it shall not be eaten. Okay, so it's saying that there are certain gift offerings, don't eat any of it. The other one we just saw, you did. But this one, which is to sanctify the high priest, don't eat any of it. Okay? It's a special offering for the anointing of Aaron, the high priest. The well-stirred oil, we know oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit, right? Is a picture of the fact the Holy Spirit is to sustain every part of the priest's life, and especially the high priest. Okay? It, the, the Holy Spirit is to be the one that he goes to for, for answers. He's supposed to listen to him for leading the Holy Spirit. The breaking of the pieces indicates the breaking of the body of the Messiah. Hmm. I'm the bread. Uh, we find a clue about that, the Messiah, the true gift offering. It says in uh, Matthew 26, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it. And he gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body. And when he'd taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for, the, for many for forgiveness of sins. And I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Christ's broken body was offered as a complete sacrifice. And that is a picture of the fact that he paid for the sins of everyone. First John 2, 1 and 2, he's a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for those of the entire world. And then the sin offering, verse 24, here it is again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, okay, and again, he spoke, Devar is a word that emphasizes, it's got definition, it's got content to it. It's more focused on what the word means, the words mean, than the fact that it's being spoken. But it was formulated, it was thought about, and then he said it. It also indicates that he was speaking face to face with Moses, wasn't it? That this just wasn't something Moses dreamed up in his head. This was something, because it, it, being a literalist, I believe that's literally what happened. Moses here, now, and he talked to him. We also find other places that said Moses spoke with God face to face. That doesn't seem like a dream or a vision or any other way that God communicated other than face to face. Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, This is the law of the sin offering, kata'ah, in the place where the burnt offering, olah, carbon, is slain. The sin offering shall be slain before the Lord. It is holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. Seemed like they came out with a movie a long time ago called The Sin Eater. You remember that? They did, actually. Christian movie came out 25 years ago, maybe, and they called it the Sin Eater, and it was a it was a typical allegorical story <laughs> about this this girl that could eat sins. Well, where in the world would anybody ever get an idea like that? Here we go. <laughs> okay, he offers it for sin. Shall eat it? He couldn't eat the burnt offering. Nobody ate the burnt offering. People could eat from the peace offering and sometimes from the grain offering, but nobody nobody could, could eat from the burnt offering. And what does it say? These things are supposed to be done at the same place. The burnt offering and the sin offering offered at the same place, which is a bronze altar. Okay, But this one, he says, uh, the priest who offers it, Next one up in the line, the one doing the sacrifices for the day, shall eat it. It shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tent of the meeting. 
Again, they have a special place. The priest would go and the priest would eat. When they built the temple, same thing. They had a special place where the priest could go and the priest could, could eat. Anyone who touches its flesh shall become consecrated? What? The flesh of the sin offering shall become holy? <laughs> And when any of its blood splashes on a garment in the holy place, you shall wash what it what was splashed on. You got to really think about these, don't you? Stop back because they're teaching different elements and aspects of the Christian life. They're teaching different aspects of Christology, soteriology. They're teaching different elements of that. And he says, "In the earthen well, where vessel in which it was boiled shall be broken." <laughs> Okay, you got a garment splashed with blood. You got two places you can clean it out. Okay, you can put it in a in a clay pot, basically. You boil it, you clean the garment, okay, and then you smash the pot. And if it's boiled in a bronze vessel, it shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Hmm. <laughs> Every male among the priests may eat of it. It's most holy. The priests are there all day. Usually mama was taking care of the kids and, and gathering the manna and doing all that sort of stuff. And the priests there offering all these offerings. And so they get to eat. They don't have to go home for lunch. There's, you know, that's not what they're doing. It's all provided. But no sin offering of which any of the blood is brought into the tent of the meeting to make atonement in the holy place shall be eaten. There were certain sin offerings offered up daily for the nation. We'll read that, be, read about these later. And they would take some of the blood, as you know, and they'd go and they would sprinkle the lampstand, sprinkle the altar of incense. And so there was a, a sprinkling that was made. If that sin offering's blood was used to do that, you couldn't eat it. That's all, is all that it's saying. Now, the burnt and, and sin offerings were to be slain on the bronze altar. Okay, that's, we know early on, he's already told us, burnt offerings go on the bronze altar. So this one said, the burnt offering, the sin offerings on the same altar. The bronze altar had special significance and meaning in the tabernacle. It's a place most holy. Yeah, it's a picture of, of what Messiah was going to do as an innocent sacrifice. That's what it was a picture of. The officiating priest got to eat from the sin offering, but not the burn offering. But not not a sin offering that was used to sprinkle and anoint the, the various uh, utensils and, and furniture. That priest at that service pictured the imputation of sins to the body of the Messiah. He knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf, so we could become the righteousness of God in him. So... The priest at that service, where where they couldn't uh, eat, he was uh, uh, that picture of the imputation of the sins to the body of the Messiah. And when the blood hits him, what what happens with the blood? This there. Why did it render it unholy, unclean? Anyway, touching the sacrifice imputed righteousness to those who were there, as it was identifying with the old, with the offering. Because a person didn't just touch the sacrifice by a mistake. Okay? It basically says I'm identifying with the sacrifice on this on this altar. So that's why it says all who touch, that's a volitional act, will be consecrated, set apart, made holy. Any blood that touches a garment's to be washed off at a place to be designated. Okay? So they got wash pots. They got different things set up inside of this, this outer court. Now, if the garment is boiled in a clay pot, it's to be destroyed because it might have absorbed some of the blood. That's just a practical thing. Okay, They're going to boil it, so maybe if there was a glaze or a finish on it or whatever it was, it still may have taken it away, and there was a strict prohibition about not eating any blood found all the way through the Mosaic Law. So if it was in there... You couldn't clean it properly, and so then they were to take and, and break it. Uh, it's interesting because a lot of places, when you find these these uh, archaeological finds, these ancient tales, they will find place after place that's nothing but broken pots. 
And they'd take them out to the side of the city and they'd break these things. And a lot of times I think they used them for foundations. They'd have so many of them because the tail is just a, a mound. And they're, they're layer after layer after layer after layer of where people lived. And they didn't, they, <laughs> whenever they did, they just covered it up with dirt and built on top of it. That's what they did. And they did it all over big hills, big mountains. Whenever they get ready to, to excavate a uh, archaeological site, <laughs> they, they dig a hole straight down. And then they start looking at where are the different layers and levels. And they can identify different eras based on what they find in these levels. Because whenever they, whenever it, whenever something changes, they just cover that up and build on top of it. It's what they did. Did it with Jericho. I mean, they see it at Jericho, and they they listed all the different levels that were found in there. And that's one of the ways that they date archaeological sites is because Israel went and burned everything. Didn't burn at all. But they went and burned it. So when you find a burn layer on a town, you can connect it based on what pottery is found in there. It's called pottery dating. They see this pottery was used here. It was a common thing used over this particular area. Here's a burn layer. We can date all these tells, this layer, at 1405 B.C. And that's how they put it together. And it's not the most accurate form of doing it. It's a comparison dating. If you've got your date off to begin with because you didn't get Egypt right, then you got all the dates off. But at least it's a comparison dating that you can say, this culture, this culture, and here are the Amorites, here are the Canaanites, here's the Jews, here's this. And you find out from other people who went and killed who and burned what. <laughs> and then you start looking for, for burn layers. It's just how they uh, how they do it. It's uh, fascinating. Maybe we can actually know a real archaeologist, so maybe we can get him down here sometime. He, uh, uh, Daddy was a pastor up in Spokane, uh, Washington, Spokane Bible Church, Ted, Todd Kennedy, and Titus is the son, and he is a full-bore doctor of archaeology, so maybe I can get him to swing through here sometime and talk with us. That'd be, that'd be a lot of fun. A brass pot, though, <laughs> could be sterilized for use again. Picturing the fact that some vessels, in this case believers, can be cleansed for honorable use. Now this is a... Why did Paul put this in Second Timothy? Well, he's well familiar with the Mosaic Law. He's a Pharisee. He says, Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but vessels of wood and earthenware. What we got here? Earthenware. Some to honor, some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, and prepared for every good work. It's just like I, I've said many times. You could take a spittoon that's been in a bar for 20 years, and you can, it is possible, to clean it well enough you can drink from it. Well, that's like, that's just a picture of a, a lot of us, isn't it? <laughs> we're, such, we're just a spittoon on the inside, but God can, can clean it. In the blood of the sin, if the blood of the sin offering was used to sanctify part of the holy place furnishings, then the sacrifice was not to be eaten, portraying that the blood of the Messiah was not yet applied to our sins. Messiah had not yet come. See, 1 Peter 1.17, If you address his father, the one who impartially judges, according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time of stay on earth knowing you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now we know that there is a, a spiritual meaning to the blood of Christ, but I believe there's also a physical meaning to the blood of Christ. We all have a spiritual problem, we have a physical problem. Physical problems is in nature. 
and it is called a sin nature for a reason. So it needed to be paid for too. It says, For he who is foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so your faith and your hope are in God. <clears throat> Sacrifice was not to be eaten. Why? Blood of Messiah was not yet, not yet complete. And therefore the sins were still an issue. So, anyway. A lot of stuff, you got to stop and think about it. But really, it's, it's fascinating to go, what did this mean? And why did they do this? And why did they not do that? Okay? And then try to answer them all. Try to answer them all. And you got to stop and think about it. But when you do, you say, oh, I see that now. Hopefully. Maybe not tonight, but if you go back through it again, maybe maybe later. All right. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and mercy. And we thank you for each other, your blessings. We thank you that uh, we can come together and be able to open up your word. Thank you for the encouragement we always get from opening up your word together. May we continue to do that and seek to walk this straight line you have laid out for us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.